Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I think a virtual reality game where you just watch shit happen and do math problems is a bad use of the technology. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I want to categorically deny being a pan-species communist because I believe that dogs are superior to all other forms of life. And you know what? I'm not going to argue with you on that one. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is Space the Nation, which you know if you've, you've clicked play. We are now going to talk about Three-Body Problem by... Sishin Liu. Sishin Liu. Liu, yes. Or Liu <laughs> Sishin, depending upon how you whether you want to call him by the Chinese way of doing it or by the English way of doing it. When we do Spanish novels, I will be able to really be on top of the pronunciation. And when I'll we just... do Spanish novels, I will be like the Jimmy Smith's character in that SNL skit. <laughs> where, like, you know, you like really exaggerate the accent. You know so. what's funny in Texas, or in Austin, I guess, I don't know about other parts of Texas, there's a weird mix of like completely anglicizing words and then mm -hmm. words that you pronounce exactly like you're supposed to in Spanish. But like Guadalupe Street, you don't say Guadalupe Street. Right. You know, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the loop. And then yeah. there's this other weird thing where there's a road that's spelled Manshaka, but everyone just calls it Manshack. Interesting. I don't know. You know what? That's a little travelogue for people because we're going to travel. At we're some point, gonna, we're going to travel. Soon pretty far here oh, well, in this, this book, yes. novel metaphorically we are traveling a great <laughs> deal in this podcast thank you thank you Anna. i apologize i'm once again being too literal which might be one of the things we will discuss as we uh as we go along perhaps to quickly review the things we're going to be discussing in future episodes i believe our next text is arrival mm -hmm. uh, the movie which i keep having to i don't know why and you keep on this, saying this is my Dan's idea, idea. <laughs> exactly <laughs> So I'm really Stand's looking idea. forward to that conversation, actually. Um, and then we're going to dive into a cannon fodder episode with H.P. Lovecraft. We're going to do the version one pilot of Battlestar Galactica. And then Children of Men, or do we have a book in there? I believe we have Children of Men next. I, we don't, I don't know if we have another book. But, you know, that's a couple weeks from now. We're flexible. Yeah, we, and things change. And yeah, I don't think exactly. anyone's really planning their schedule around ours. So we'll let I, you know when we know, as, as soon as we can. Yes. And speaking of letting you know what text we're going to do, Dan. We are very, 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 very close to 100 paying patrons. When we hit 100, we are doing a special patrons-only show, a topic chosen by the patrons. So we would strongly encourage you, if you are not a patron already, to uh, do so. You can go to patreon.com slash space the nation. Really just like kick in a small amount of money, and then you will hopefully hear our special episode. And also, we will very much consider your advice and suggestions for what we will be talking about in the future. And I think there have been some really cool suggestions. We have a spreadsheet set up for patrons, and I think we are going to do Dune. That's actually one of the uh, things I know we're going to do. Yes, we're definitely um, doing Dune. At some point, perhaps far in the future, uh, mm -hmm. around when it comes out as a yep. movie. Maybe we'll get to go to a movie theater. Oh, Yes. Yes. All right. But as, as I was alluding to earlier, today we are going to be talking about the three-body problem. Dan, why did, we, why did we decide to talk about this book? Why did we decide to talk about the three-body problem by, again, Xi Xin Liu? And let's just 
put this caveat at the front, which is we are going to try our damnedest to pronounce the, the Chinese names as well as possible. We're probably not going to get it completely right, and we apologize profusely for occasionally screwing that up. Yes. But the reason we are doing this is because this is the first book of a relatively famous trilogy of award-winning books. Uh, indeed, I believe this one, uh, Hugo, uh, was the first Chinese language book to win a Hugo. And, you know, if you just look at the back of the English language book, you don't see many books that are blurbed by both Barack Obama and George R.R. R. Martin as just totally groundbreaking. And the other reason we're doing it is because everything we have read to date has essentially been science fiction that has come from the United States. And U.S. science fiction is really great, and we're going to talk plenty more about that in future Space the Nation episodes. But we also wanted to discuss non-American contributions to the genre, and so this in certainly seems appropriate. It is our first non-Western book, basically. I do think that I see some differences in the storytelling and the narrative, which mm-hmm. could just be him. But <laughs> there's some definite stylistic choices here that I feel like are pretty unusual for the kinds of stuff I usually read. Unusual compared to the usual. There that's, you go. that's what I meant to say. Anna, was this the first Chinese language novel you've read? Yes. There we go. Yes. Okay. I should, of course, we did not read it in Chinese. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> we, we tried. We gave it a go. We tried this crash course for like two days, and then it, we decided, okay, I guess we can read the English language version. Right. And we're also reading this because it's had an enormous impact on Chinese culture. It's a best-selling book. It spawned a movie that became China's number one movie. Yeah, the political class reads it, mm-hmm. um, apparently very influential upon them. Also, some short story that he wrote appears on what is basically the Chinese SAT. So <laughs> he's a big deal. It's a big deal. He's been invited to uh, by the, the then vice president to Zhang Hanhai, which is essentially their equivalent of... Uh, I, I think it's kind of equal if you've combined the White House and Camp David in the same place. Hmm. Yeah, so anyway, big deal. This is yeah. a big deal book. So that is why we decided to do it. Anna, why don't you tell us the story behind the story? I will try to keep this short. <laughs> <laughs> There's kind of a lot to say. I got a little more interested in the book as I researched the book. Interesting. Okay. First of all, I will say the three-body problem is a real thing. It is a real mathematical concept. I'm quoting from Wikipedia here. (laughs) It is important because there is no general closed-form solution to the three-body problem. And what that means is that there's not an algebraic solution. You cannot write a simple formula to predict the motion of a three-body system. Uh, You can write an algebraic equation to predict the motion in certain situations, like, oh, if they all have the same mass or they're all equidistant. But in general, you can't. You have to use calculus, which, of course, has no definitive answers. Mm -hmm. And my dad, who's a mathematician, was really helpful to me in explaining something about it as a problem. It is not descriptive of a random series of events. It is a problem involving a chaotic series of events. And there's a difference, I suppose, in life and in mathematics between random and chaotic. (laughs) There is, in that the key thing about chaos theory is that, I believe the, the phrase would be sensitivity to initial conditions, which means depending upon how you start in a chaotic model, that has a dramatic effect 
on what happens down the road. And the the other way you can say it uh, is the butterfly effect, um, which is to say that essentially the notion that if a butterfly flaps its wings in point A, it could lead to a tsunami in point Z. And it sort of winds up looking random in real life because what we perceive with our poor human senses as perhaps the same positions like we think we've measured everything in the exact right place Mm -hmm. if we're off just a little bit the end result is very off from our prediction and this actually happens in the novel where a prediction is made that they confidently say is going to work and it happens to be sort of right I found it really interesting that my dad brought up, brought up also the butterfly effect in context of this novel, which I was like, oh, that makes the novel actually more interesting if you think about <laughs> it in terms of like small changes having big effects. Mm-hmm. My dad also pointed out it's actually a four-body problem. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. That is correct. Because I... the three-body problem refers to if you have three bodies trying to orbit each other in space but actually it's the fourth body that is trying to deal with and cope with these other three bodies and so yeah that mind blown wow yeah i was my mind is still blown my dad posited he hasn't read the book although i'm going to send it to him because i think he might enjoy the parts that are a lot of math (laughs) he said it's possible he, he asked now are the suns of great mass compared to the planet? Because mm. if the planet is of enough, is if it's small enough compared to the suns, it is functionally the same as a three-body problem, although you wind up with even greater estimation problems. Right, because you're eliminating it and it still would play potentially a role. Interesting. There you go. Okay. So anyway, so those are the two big things I have to say about the actual mathematical problem of three bodies. <laughs> the other thing I want to say is that this is um, the flowering of Chinese science fiction that is happening right now. Science fiction actually doesn't have a long history in China. I found kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. In Western culture, there's a lot more of it. And this goes back even not pre-communist China. Apparently, there's just not a lot of science fiction writing. Mm-hmm. And then in the Cultural Revolution period, science fiction was mainly kind of instructive. Those parables for children and whatnot. Ideological, as it were. Right. And then, sort of as it is in real life and is in the book, people would not write science fiction for fear of crossing the government. (laughs) I thought you were going to say cross the streams, but yes, that does make sense. (laughs) And so there is a a big boom in Chinese science fiction happening now in part because of the relative opening of... Mm -hmm the economy and the culture relative 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 yeah it should be stressed that this book was written you can argue potentially at the peak of china's opening because it was published in china in 2006 and then eventually published in the united states in 2014 china is not quite as open as it was 15 years ago it's still much more open than the cultural revolution era i want to stress that but but it's it, it is not quite as open as it used to be I also will say that he, at least in public, presents himself as kind of an anti-Le Guin in terms of the way he thinks about science fiction. As those who listen to that episode might remember, she says outright, not that her science fiction is so much commentary on what's going on, but that it is all that happens and it is true, right, on, in some way. It's not an extrapolation, it's an observation. Sushin has said over and over and over, I just make shit up, basically. 
he was asked <laughs> once about the, that short story on the Chinese SAT. He was asked the questions that students are asked about it, and apparently he got them wrong. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know why this is making me think of that. Have you ever seen Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield? I have not seen Back to Well, you know what? I think I did, but my memory is pretty fuzzy of it. So, so it, there is me. a sci-fi link, which is at one point, you know, he, he plays this like really wealthy plutocrat who decides to go back to college to bomb with his son. Um, he doesn't want to do any of the work. So he hires Kurt Vonnegut to write an essay about a Kurt Vonnegut novel. <laughs> and then uh, the professor that he's dating is played by Sally Kellerman. At one point, they get into an argument. And Sally Kellerman says, by the way, the person who wrote this essay knows nothing about Kurt Vonnegut. So, you know, I, sorry. I just, I that, is a good, that is a good tie-in, Dan. Also, just as an interesting quirk, he appears to have some form of synthesia, synthesia which is that condition where certain words or objects or descriptions will prompt a sensory experience in another area. Huh. You know, colors have a sound or sound have a color. He talks about in the essay that accompanies the book that when he thinks of spatial problems or concepts, he feels something close to a drugged euphoria and kind of an out-of-body experience. Okay, so, the only other part of the story behind the story that is worth adding is that Netflix has agreed to adapt the three-body problem, I assume the trilogy, into a series. There is a minor controversy involving that because Liu has made comments regarding the Uyghurs and, more importantly, the Chinese government's tr treatment of the Uyghurs that would be interpreted pretty easily as parroting Chinese Communist Party propaganda. And as a result, there have been complaints lodged to Netflix. I think Netflix has basically argued they're proceeding full speed ahead because Liu isn't playing a direct role in terms of the uh, the adaptation, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, is it Benioff and Weiss that are doing it, the Game of Thrones uh, guys? That sounds right to me. Yeah. And I have to say, and this will get us right into discussing the plot, I think that a series based on these books is going to be more enjoyable than the books um, <laughs> because they're going to have to get rid of a lot of stuff. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> and I suspect they're going to get rid of the sections that describe, for instance, the wavelengths of radio telemetry that happen when the sun's gases reflect back things and the number of ohms of resistance that the wire okay you are literally just like dumping spoiler alert you know spoilers <laughs> all over this podcast on and i will not have this because we have got to go to the plot all right like how dare you jump i ahead didn't say to that how many ohms were there involved <laughs> there we go but shall we begin with the plot you know what let's try okay <laughs> Uh, I'm going to apologize. This is obviously going to be a somewhat longer episode because this is a hard book to summarize. So let us begin with Act One, or the prologue of the Cultural Revolution. We begin at the peak of the Cultural Revolution, which took place between 1966 and 1976, in which uh, Ye Wenjie, theoretical astrophysicist and daughter of astrophysicists, sees her mother denounce her father as a reactionary because her father refuses to denounce modern physics. She then gets to see him lashed to death by a variety of Red Guards. Good times. After this, she is sent to Inner Mongolia uh, on a work detail, which was actually a relatively 
routine assignment that intellectuals face during the Cultural Revolution, typical to happen to them during this period. Uh, there she gets into even more ideological trouble involving her enjoyment of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. But she is asked to sign something that would further besmirch her father's reputation. She refuses, and she's about to be sentenced to prison, but is instead taken to Red Coast One, a top-secret lab with a super-fancy parabolic dish, or antenna, that it happens to be close to where she was in Inner Mongolia. Anna is Prologues go, this was a depressing one, but I will say that this was not entirely out of character with the Cultural Revolution. It seemed to reflect that era pretty well, as far as what I know about it. I do think it sets up some themes of the book, Hmm. which to me have to do with the choices that characters make. And I want to make a distinction between moral choices and political choices for some reason, because this is the thing that I think maybe makes this book different from an American author's perspective. Mm-hmm. Because I think Americans look at choices people make, like the choice to denounce or not to denounce, the choice to refute modern physics or not refute modern physics, as moral ones, as like, is this the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Mm-hmm. And he kind of sets up a world where... Right and wrong are not the binary, but useful and not useful. And maybe right and wrong only comes into play at the other end of the story. Like, what are you trying to get to? I think the way I would put it is that the thing about the prologue, which actually I thought was was some of the better writing we see in the book. I mean, there's some legitimately gripping scenes in this and less so as we go along. But it does set the context, I think, for why later Ye Wenjian makes the choices that she makes. And and also, I, in some ways, the, I guess the other way I would put it is that, you know, particularly for Americans, trying to describe what life was like during the Cultural Revolution, in some ways, this is a very vivid, you know, depiction of that. And I don't think there's any necessarily within American history, unless perhaps you were african-american during the slave era that necessarily matches this in in some ways it's almost like take the conservative caricature of woke culture and amplify it by a million and that's basically what it seems like in that sense i think it all just the history is so different and that that's also interesting i think another thing that i suspect is that difference between American perspective or lack of a context that we have versus mm-hmm. the context that someone who would be intimately familiar with the cultural revolution, that context or perspective is that righteousness is not always rewarded. Mm, that yes. righteousness <laughs> is a luxury yeah. that, you know, we Americans tell all kinds of stories. It's, it is, you know, the cliche of American stories that when you do the right thing, you are rewarded for it, like ultimately, or the, the bad guys will look bad at least. And he sets up right away <laughs> that doing the right thing can be kind of pointless, like can have no effect whatsoever. Pretty much. So on that note, that is the re- that is the tone of the rest of the book. <laughs> Right, which brings us to Act 2, or as I like to call it, Meet the Physics Nerds. We fast forward uh, 40 plus years and the narrative shifts to Wang Miao, 
an applied physicist working on nanomaterial research. He is asked by the police and the military to go with him to something called the Battle Command Center, a top-secret uh, PLA, PLA is short for People's Liberation Army, building in which he is surprised to find NATO and CIA personnel, along with uh, Chinese officials, all led by a General Chang. The general keeps talking about the current situation like there's a war without actually saying what's going on, but is concerned that there are multiple leading scientists apparently committing suicide within the last two months, including theoretical physicist Yang Dong. Yang Dong leaves a cryptic suicide note suggesting that, quote, physics has never existed and will never exist. End quote. These suicides appear to be linked to an international fellowship of researchers called the Frontiers of Science, or SF. Wang investigates, talking to Yang's boyfriend and such. Uh, as he investigates, a mysterious countdown clock appears in his old-school photographic film, and then, after a while, in his own vision. Uh, he contacts a taciturn Frontiers of Science member, uh, Shen Yufei. Going to her home, he sees her playing a VR virtual reality game called Three Body. Asked about the countdown, Shen encourages him to stop working on his nanomaterial project. He's a bit freaked out about this, but decides to stop the reactor for repairs, and the countdown clock disappears from his vision. Anna, I'm not going to lie, this part did freak me out as well, because the idea that there would be something that would cause you to magically show a countdown clock in old-school photographic film and or other things is uh, somewhat disturbing. It is a, a genuinely creepy thing to have happened. I do think they never resolve it, which is also, I guess, somewhat creepy. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of plot lines that are just kind of, to use a visual from later in the book, they're dropped like strands of dross upon you Ooh. and never quite picked back up. Anna, that is literally a deep cut. <laughs> <laughs> and I will not tarry very long at this particular juncture. Dan, please continue with the plot. Okay, so Wang is also now officially freaked out, calls Shen and basically asks, what the fuck? What the fucking fuck? Uh, Shen says to wait three days and then he will see the clock on a much grander scale, a.k.a. actual fluctuations in cosmic radiation. In the meanwhile, Wang decides to play the three-body virtual reality game, which is a simulation set on a world divided between chaotic eras and stable eras. During the chaotic eras, uh, night and day last for very irregular periods and can generate extreme temperatures, and civilization as we know it can end. A large amount of people cannot survive during these conditions, and so as a result, they hibernate via dehydration, which is they literally apparently take all the water out of themselves and are like rolled up like blankets or towels. During stable eras, large-scale flourishing is possible. The problem is, is that no effort uh, to predict the occurrence of stable eras of long duration has succeeded yet, and so as a result, the game keeps ending with the collapse of civilizations. Wang keeps observing this. Anna, the thing that I thought was the oddest part of this portion of the book was that we know, because it says in the book, that Wang has a wife and child, and yet that is the one appearance they have. They appear, I think, on two pages, and then poof, they are gone throughout the entire book. Yep. <laughs> Seems odd to me, too. It is here, though, where a certain sort of uh, narrative technique is introduced that becomes the dominant technique of the entire book, which is it is almost like a video game in which mm. characters walk onto screen and tell you things <laughs> and then walk off. <laughs> and I couldn't help it like when exposition dumps happened, mm -hmm. like they do in video games, like it happens in this video game. So it's like a cutscene. 
It's like a cutscene. Yeah. I would imagine in my head like a character kind of like walking on kind of stiffly and turning to the audience and saying <laughs> a bunch of stuff and then t- and then like continuing yeah. on. And I started to think of it as um kind of the literary equivalent of like dogma movies which have this very set uh-huh you know, kind of artificial series of rules that have to do with like using natural sound and stuff. And this is not natural, but it just, the artifice of it. It's Brechtian. Yes, it's Brechtian. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Portrayal Brecht. Yeah, I took Theater 101 when I was in college. Okay. And Uh, and if you think about it that way, the whole book feels kind of like the same video game he's playing. And I I don't mean that as a compliment. um, (laughs) Because the video game... He's playing sounds incredibly tedious. I mean, just terrible. The other (laughs) interesting thing about it is that Wang himself as a character disappears, essentially, as the book proceeds. I mean, it's it's an odd thing because we wind up reading much more about the three-body problem than we do about... But even, like, the descriptions of Wang interacting with it in the game are more prominent when he starts, and then it just sort of fades from view. It's... Slightly frustrating in that sense. Um, and just to be clear, the, the gameplay, if you haven't actually read the book, well, I don't know why you're listening, but the <laughs> gameplay of the of the game, video, virtual reality game, three-body problem, is that you uh, sort of appear in this historical era mm-hmm. and observe things, and things get told to you, and... <laughs> I, I, here's the way I would put it. The game missed has more action than the three-body yeah. game. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is, that's that exactly right. Yeah. And more puzzles, because there's yeah. only one puzzle in this one. Exactly. Which is, I actually, this is important. The the one, the singular puzzle of the three-body problem game is to try and figure out the pattern of the suns around this planet. Excuse me, that's to it. predict the chaotic eras and stable eras. You well, once yes, again but that is... spoiled this, but yes, no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, yes, but that coincides with the number of suns that are in the sky. Right. So you have to yeah. predict the sun's movements, which will then tell you the chaotic versus stable eras. Exactly. So. Which leads us to Act 3. Yes. Meet the Trisolarans. Wang, desperate to understand what is going on, starts listening to Da Shur, a pretty rough-and-tumble cop who has also been recruited into the Battle Command Center for mysterious reasons. He goes on to talk to Yang Dong's mother, who it turns out is, surprise, Ye Wingjie. She relates what happened at Red Coast One, which is an effort apparently by the Chinese state to monitor and communicate with extraterrestrial life. She tells Wang that the effort was unsuccessful. So... Wang continues to play the three-body and figures out the puzzle of the chaotic eras. The game takes place in a three-star system. Wang continues to play the three-body problem and figures out what Anna had said before, you know, the puzzle of the chaotic eras, there's three suns. Um, immediately after this discovery, Da Shur contacts Wang so they can hear Wei Cheng, Shen's partner, uh, Shen Yufei's partner, to tell his story. In brief, Wei Cheng is intuitively good at math, interested in trying to develop a general solution to the three-body problem. This attracts Shaden Yufei's interests and insistence that he solve the problem, but then also threats that he stop his work uh, or he will die. They go on to interrogate Shen, but uh, find her dead in her apartment. Another mystery that's not solved. <laughs> Another th- There's a lot of mysteries that Just lying on the ground. Yeah. The suicides are never really addressed. And the fact that this woman's daughter committed suicide. There is a little bit of kind of fine writing at one point about her grief. 
And then it is completely dropped. It is just like there is, it is not mentioned again. And not to just bring us all down, but come on. Like a child committing suicide would be a a life-changing, worldview-changing event. And it actually could help the story, you know? And it no, is just kind of like, you know, we moved on. No, if you're going to spend that many pages trying to figure out how you could actually, uh, you know, send a powerful signal out to extraterrestrial life, you can devote a couple of pages maybe to how Yen Wenjie felt or, you know, about her daughter committing suicide or why the daughter committed suicide. Especially since if we do some linking that the novel does not do, mm-hmm. she inadvertently caused her daughter to commit suicide which you will get into how that all works out. Yes. But anyway, very frustrating, <laughs> very frustrating kind of tantalizing bits of plot. Right. Um, that are just sort of, again, left like draws. So Wang continues to play Three Body and witnesses a 30 million person computer attempt to tackle the prediction of the stable eras. I have to jump in here because... Yes. There is a lot of math. What's that? Not really math, actually. There's a lot of discussion of technical details. Right. That's what's in the book. This, however, did kind of amuse me. Mm-hmm. And like the bit sort of works. And I actually told my dad about it. Uh-huh. I was like, Dad, so one of the things they do is like they explain binary code mm-hmm. with, you know, the terracotta soldiers, basically. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I have to say... <laughs> I was like, well, I, I, I'm glad I'm smart enough to get this, you know? Let me put this way. The other, the other book that, kept, that this kept reminding me of weirdly was Tolkien's The Hobbit, which is not something that they don't have that much in common. But here's where I, I do think they have one thing in common, which is much like Tolkien, where there are long passages where it's just like everyone preparing to do something or, you know, packing mm-hmm. provisions for a journey. It's incredibly boring. And there and there are these scenes that you read where you're like, holy crap, this is like literally an action movie on the page. And this was one of those scenes where it's like, I am looking forward to the Netflix version of this because this is a scene that is meant to be displayed visually. And uh, it does kind of manage to make binary code kind of exciting. Yeah. And I can't believe I'm putting those words together <laughs> in the same sentence, but it works. Like, there's a, when the writing and the technique in this book work, mm-hmm. it is, I will say, it's almost miraculous. He is doing something that is incredibly rare. And I think that that is what people are responding to. <laughs> I, I mean, I would say the that... praise I, of this book. I think that's part of it. I think, yes, there are images that he conjures up that are legitimately novel and alien, I guess would be one. You know, and and way awesome in and that. Awesome, yeah. In the awe-inspiring right. meaning. Of that and word. then there are, like, again, it's, as a, you know... I like solving puzzles. And so, again, that's another way in which it draws you in, which is trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are some interesting dilemmas that, as an international relations scholar, I confess I found interesting. All right. So So 30 million person computer, which 30 million person computer attempt to tackle the prediction of the stable errors. And guess what? It fails. After that failure, however, uh, Wang is invited to a real-world meetup with the other three-body gamers. The convener is a scientist named Pan Han, who is an environmentalist. Pan Han implies that the game is actually a simulation of real extraterrestrials called Trisolarans, uh, who wish to come to Earth. 
Panhan then asks those present, who wants to see the aliens take over Earth? And excommunicates the two gamers who kind of express qualms about that. Wang does not express qualms. Uh, he plays along in order to stay in the know. Meanwhile, within the three-body game, the Trisolarans uh, successfully launch a spaceship traveling at one-tenth the speed of light. It's not within the game. Is it real or not? I think it's real. No, it's both. It's I, in other words, I so obviously the three body game is designed to sort of simulate what's going on in the in the Trisolaran world, but I right. think we see Wang observing a ship being launched within the three body game. So it, both things are happening. In other words, he sees it in VR, but it's also happening in real life. Does that make sense? I don't know if that's right, but I don't want to go back and look. So it, No, I'm pretty sure a- I'm pretty sure it is right. Like the, the <laughs> ship had been launched before you know, long before Wang sees it in the VR. That was my impression. All right. It doesn't Um, really matter in terms of, like, the plot, but a Um, ship is launched towards Earth. Right. In the real world, a much larger meetup occurs in which we learn the Trisolarans actually do hail from the nearest star to the system, which, uh, to the sun, which is Alpha Centauri, which is, in fact, actually a trinary star system. So there's a reason this works. At this meetup, we also see that, oh my gosh, Ye Wenjie is involved with this. Who would have guessed? Ye has Pan Han killed for his reckless actions, because it turns out that Pan Han had, among other things, killed uh, Shen Yufei. We also learned that, wait for it, Ye had been less than forthcoming about what actually had happened at Red Coast 1. As it turns out, she had learned a way to broadcast her message to extraterrestrials using the sun as a massive amplifier, and it's Anna said, many pages devoted to that. She gets a reply <laughs> from a pacifist Trisolaran who warns against further broadcast lest her planet be invaded. Ye instead responds with a message welcoming invasion because in her opinion, mankind no longer has the ability to solve its own problems. Anna, my question is, can you blame Ye for this? Because bear in mind, she is writing this again during the sort of tail end of the Cultural Revolution uh, an experience in which she has seen her mother denounce her father, her father lashed to death. She's been sent to a work camp. Now she's in a, a top secret military base. It's hard to blame her. Yeah, I mean, within the context, you can't blame her. I Well, hmm. so let's think about this a little bit. She has been given a backstory which would give her an incredibly negative view of humanity. Right. It is true. And maybe, see, this is sort of like where I'm like, is this my Western view kind of coming in, which is that she does not imagine a world beyond her own borders. Mm-hmm. Like, she's, she doesn't imagine any other country or any other response or any other good or, or any other good in the world. Like, her image of what humans are like. Yeah. I mean, is defined it's, solely from her own experience. Like, but the, to the extent that she gets exposed to other cultures, it's not great. In other words, it's it's Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which right. is also a, a damning uh, environmentalist discussion of what the U.S. is But doing. you could say that this is not her fault that she has this incredibly negative view and yeah. she has, does not think beyond the borders of her own country because that's one of the other things that the Cultural Revolution did, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it limited the knowledge of people in China of the outside world and really you know, create a propaganda about the world outside China that mm-hmm. depicted it as pretty hellish and terrible and people yes. are mean to each other and racism, and which they weren't wrong about some of that stuff. But but it was really bad within China at this point. So. Uh, <laughs> yes. way, if, in other words, if to the extent that Yi is trying to figure out whether mankind is worth saving or can organize itself, just experiencing the Cultural Revolution, you would have logically concluded the answer was no. Yes. Okay. 
All right, this brings us to Act 4, or as I like to call it, the Sofans hit the fan. Dasher uh, breaks up the larger meetup, and Ye is captured and interrogated. Uh, she reveals, among other things, that she killed her husband and the Red Coast political commissar to keep her correspondence with the Trisolarans a secret. Ye does not hear back from the Trisolarans during her remaining time at Red Coast One. As China recovers from the Cultural Revolution and starts opening up to the rest of the world, Ye is integrated back into society and gets a teaching job at Tsinghua University, but finds that the scars from that period have not necessarily healed. In the 90s, uh, she meets Mike Evans, who is the son of an American oil magnate. In developing some sympathies with, with Evans, uh, she decides to spill the beans about the Trisolarans. Evans despises mankind and declares himself to be a pan-species communist. He therefore decides to use his inherited wealth to build a boat containing the necessary antenna to communicate with the Trisolarans. He founds the ETO, or Earth Trisolaris Organization, to prepare Earth for the arrival of the Trisolarans. They have the most success, as it turns out, recruiting among scientific and cultural elites rather than the mass public. Anna, I'm not going to lie, this portion of the book left me completely cold. Much as I would sympathize with Ye's decision that mankind is not worth running anything based on her time during the Cultural Revolution, during this period, ostensibly, China is making extraordinary technological and economic progress, and I'm supposed to believe that Ye is oblivious to this fact. So, I can't believe I'm defending <laughs> okay, this particular yeah. plot point, but yes, China is healing scars and, and opening up a little bit, but she does have, again, one of the few places in the book that feels like actual writing, mm. where she meets up with the women that killed her father. Yes, yes, that was actually one of the better scenes, I agree, yeah. And they express no regret whatsoever. And that's why I think Ye is still down on mankind, <laughs> people kind, you know? Yeah. I do want to say this is where the writing in the book just really started to drive me mad, except for that, like a few select areas. There is so much telling and not showing. Like the entire <laughs> Mike Evans section and the creation of this e of the ETO is just like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. <laughs> and then there's also this sort of weird, this kind of throwaway part where they talk about they're only successful among the elites. And I was like, I want to hear more about that. You right. know? And this like, was also I, I think that this is really interesting that the common people aren't, would you'd seem to think, more reason to hate humanity mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's it, he implies that it's the luxury of wealth and the you know benefit of kind of non-proletarian labor that allows one to have this kind of cynical view which i don't know if i agree the paradox that i couldn't quite deal with was given what happens later in the book it seems illogical to me that scientists would have been the ones to embrace trisolarans the most, given that in the end, what winds up happening is that fundamental science gets deeply affected and, and not in a good way. Not to mention the fact that scientists are the ones committing suicide. And the, this was the part where I was a little bit confused, which is, were the scientists committing suicide part of the ETO or were they others who the ETO was messing with? Again, this is not clear at all. It's not clear at all. And I only actually kind of figured this out I think while we were speaking. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is that they're reacting to the Sofans. Yes, they are. Presence, yeah. right? No, no, that I that I got. Yes. Yeah, they are reacting to the Sofans presence. I think they are collateral damage. Okay. 
I think that they are, although it's such a strange, it's so str- it's such a strange thing because mm-hmm. not only does that not made explicit, mm-hmm. it isn't it also clear who they are, if they're involved in frontiers of science, if they know about the Trisolarians. And I mean, I guess what part of me is like the, the you know, big scheme here, and I know you're, you're going to talk more about it, is yeah. that these you know, things that the Trislerians, you know, infect science with, infect photons with, um, <laughs> to screw with the fundamental, appear to screw with the fundamental nature of physics, right? Yeah. Like, that's what happens. And that's what causes all these scientists to commit suicide? Oh, so, it, I, oh, no, 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 no. So I actually have, I will admit, this is where I, I as a social they scientist. They get depressed about, they get depressed about the fact that science doesn't exist. So no, they you know, so like, how do I put, all right, I, I, this is the social scientist me in, at my most petty, which is to say, oh, physical scientists, the world that you're studying is changing, you say. Poor you, okay? <laughs> Welcome to my goddamn world. All right? The difference between the physical sciences and the social sciences has always been that, by and large, the physical sciences, the sort of fundamental laws of the universe that you are trying to discover, have been largely constant for a long period of time, basically since seconds after the Big Bang. Social scientists, almost by definition, when you study something, actually change it. And therefore, you know, whatever limited predictive powers we have is much narrower. Our job is much tougher. And I am sick of hearing physicists talk about this shit. Sorry. Dan, I'm, I'm going to pull up a little stepladder here. <laughs> and I would like you to climb down off of your high horse. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. That was a triggering discussion. I grant you that. <laughs> Because yes. the place where that is not true is theoretical physics. Ah. I understand your complaint when it comes to, I don't know, I guess. Most scientists. Um, <laughs> biology, maybe, you know, to some extent, like, I guess, geology. But you're referring to the Heisenberg uncertainty, or, you know, you're... you're or quantum physics. Yes, yes. And, and see, that in particular makes me wonder about why these, you know, physicists would, would commit suicide, because right now... One of the things that is happening in higher science, higher mathematics and in and, and, and quantum physics is the discovery of all these like random, literally random, mm-hmm. wild things happening, Charming. unpredictability and whatnot. Yes. And no one's committing suicide as far as I know. <laughs> I think a real scientist would see these results and wonder what was happening. Right. And I don't think it would over in the span of just like a couple months be like, well, oh, I guess science doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Like maybe if you went at it for years and you kept on getting random results and you kept on not being able to describe it, then you might commit suicide. But let me use the example of the three body problem to present. <laughs> oh, bravo. <laughs> bravo. You brought it all back home on it. Okay, keep going. A case yeah. where there is no solution and there is chaotic behavior. As far as I know, no one has committed suicide over it. Fair enough. Okay, let us close with the uh, how the book ends. We discover that the ETO has split into multiple factions. 
they're the Adventists, who are led by Evans, uh, seeking the complete destruction of humanity by the Trisolarans. Then there are the Redemptionists, led by Shen Yufei, who believe the Trisolarans are sort of deities, and they worship them, and seek to help the Trisolarans to actually find a computational problem to the three-body problem, but not necessarily destroy humanity. There is a third smaller faction, uh, the Survivors, I would call them Quislings, intending to help the Trisolarans in exchange for their own descendants living while the rest of humanity dies. So nice. The authorities, in needing to get information from the Adventists, launch a plan to essentially use very thin fibers to slice Mike Evans' ship open as it crosses the Panama Canal to gain access to any information the Trisolarans sent the Adventists. This was easily, again, another scene, by the way, where I, again, want to see the Netflix version of this, Anna. I think that will make a great visual. Mm Mm-hmm. And I found it much creepier and more tense than anything having to do with the countdown. Really? Yeah. Oh, I was the countdown creeped me out much more. In part because for someone who loves horror and science fiction, Mm -hmm. I'm actually like pretty squeamish. And I kept on like kind of doing the thing where I was like kind of squinting my eyes and looking ahead because the idea of reading perhaps very detailed descriptions of people getting sliced. would be upsetting to me. And then the tension of it though, I was actually, again, this is, this is some of the good writing right. in, in the book, the tension of what's going to happen works. Yeah. Like you feel it. And there's a weird countdown that happens. Like he's saying it's you know, four kilometers away, right. three kilometers away. There's like, actual it's a tension. Form of a countdown. Right. There's yeah. actual tension. And I, I will say this, the, the thing about the, the countdown um, in terms of like seeing it in your eyes, in some ways that's more of a surprise that's not clued in. So in that sense, it's less suspenseful. But uh, for me, that seems much more horrific. The idea that you literally can't close your eyes to something that you're going to see it no matter what, I find oh, utterly see, terrifying. I, I do find getting sliced to be more terrifying than okay. having like a, a moat in my eye. So the slicing of the ship does yield some intel. Humans learn that the Trisolarans are just as divided as humans. However, we also learn that the Trisolaran leadership has launched an interstellar fleet to invade Earth. Uh, But they are alarmed at our planet's exponential technological progress because apparently the Trisolaran civilization, technological advancement only happens at a constant or decelerating rate. The Trisolarans decide that they have no choice but to somehow try to arrest Earth science because by the time the fleet arrives on Earth, we will be more technologically sophisticated than the Trisolarans. They could give the tech to the Adventists to sort of operate as a fifth column. Instead, they decide to create Sophons. These Sophons are super intelligent protons uh, that they are able to send very quickly to Earth, far quicker than the interstellar fleet. And in fact, those Sophons uh, are able to essentially halt basic science, like the development of particle accelerators, by sending errant data to the physicists, and the physicists, being fragile as fuck, apparently keep committing suicide about this. Uh, This explains all the weird shit that, that Wang has seen prior to the book. The Trisolarans send one last message that everyone on Earth sees in their eyes, which is, your bugs, and then go dark. Wang thinks that's that's the end of mankind, because essentially uh, they cannot commit more basic science because all the particle accelerators won't work. But Dasher reminds them to think of the inability of man to control bugs on Earth, which should inspire mankind to resist. The end. Okay, Anna, I have economic history beef with this premise, which is the link between science and technology is way more complicated than presented in this book. The argument is is that you can only have like massive technological advancement if you have, you know, significant increases in basic science. The two are correlated, but that's not really necessarily the way economic history is played out. And also, I kept wondering the Sophons can't do much with biology, and it's not like biological innovation is insignificant either. Sorry. 
Uh, no, I, this is a really weak part of the book. <laughs> because there's a lot of just like, and this is what it is, and this is so. You know, it's just presented that obviously we'll have surpassed them in technology. Obviously, technology needs to be accelerating at a constant rate in order for it to continue to surpass you know, whoever. And obviously there is such a thing as technological, you know, acceleration at a constant. Like, how would you even measure that? You have to pick some kind of variable to judge it by. And I don't know, the difference between a sled and a wheel seems pretty great to me, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And probably to the people who invented the wheel, that was also a pretty big technological advance. And so how do you measure like what speed technology is advancing at? You can look at his computer memory, I guess. That's like mm-hmm. a standard way of doing it. They they talk about it in terms of like energy output, which doesn't quite resonate for me. I can sort of see that with just the idea of like, you know, presumably you have to you have to be able to harness and control energy to the point where you can send that powerful signal. And that is not an awful way to think about the degree to which civilization can control things. Although presumably that energy might be somewhat more destructive. So yeah. And also on the biology front, I find it interesting that the Trisolarians are presented as humanoid, mm-hmm. sort of by default. Yeah. Even though they do this weird dehydration thing. They're which not is really. Something... This was one of, the, again, something else that surprised me, which is there is minimal physical description of the Trisolarians. I well, mean, I think there's like zero. Yeah. I mean, like the, we learned some interesting facts, like they can dehydrate, obviously, and, and a few other things. But like you would think this would be something where there would be some description would be useful. And at one point, you know, it's mentioned like, you know, and we assume that they have humanoid form. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that that's not elaborated on in part because of the importance that context plays, you know, for all the decisions made in this in this novel. And also in general, how science fiction tends to allow for how biology affects technology and how biology affects culture. Because that whole dehydration thing, there are... Sp- life forms that do something like that. Right. You know, I think like there's some frogs and fish, as, as, as I recall. And wouldn't it be interesting if they were amphibious, you mm-hmm. know, or like somehow, I mean, I don't know, but it seems important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will say that the constructions of the Sophons was one of my favorite scenes in the book. Really? Uh, Yes. It oh, is, my eyes it glazed is just, over on this one. It is really, I mean, in part just because of the descriptions, like I mentioned before, yeah. for those who don't know the image I was referencing, the Sophons at one point, they make a mistake and they create a almost infinitely long one-dimensional Sophon. strand yeah. of, of photons and they describe it as dropping to the planet, you know, in, in, in strands of like uh, uh, light, mm-hmm. you know that falls sort of like hay or dross, you know. And then they also, and I wish there was more time spent on this, intimate the existence of infinite universes mm-hmm. in every dimension. The Sophons, if I understand it correctly, are supposed to be, you literally they're like AI computers put on protons. And you're wondering, well, how is this even possible? And I think one of the things that's intimated is that these protons operate in like 11 different dimensions. And that's one of the ways yes. in which that can be done. And yes. so, and so yes. when they accidentally like add too many dimensions, right. I think it is, the shapes that they create in three dimensions are intelligent <laughs> and form eyes that look down on the planet. 
And that is a genuinely creepy image. <laughs> and then when they're destroyed, uh, the Trisolarians destroy the, these these pieces of matter that have formed into an eye. Right. Someone's like, hey, that seemed like an intelligent life form right there. You know, how else? <laughs> that must have been an intelligent life form. And one of the scientists is like, oh, no, it was probably like a civilization. <laughs> and we killed it. You know? There you go. And I, I well, they're going to destroy like, Earth. So, like, it's not like I know, but I just thought that it. was like a cool idea yeah and a lot of this book has like cool idea yeah and then you move on yes, <laughs> yes. but there but, are cool ideas you know, but you know what else i am i'm curious about as far as um what is in this book what are you curious about anna dan anna is there ir in this book anna i'm glad you asked <laughs> this being passover <laughs> how is this ir different from all other forms of ir no i <laughs> <laughs> There is some good IR and there is some bad IR in this uh, book. The two good pieces of IR, and actually my favorite argument or sort of idea in the book, was the idea that that China during the Cultural Revolution would invest significant resources to search for alien civilizations. And the reason that it would do this is what some social scientists would refer to as prospect theory. Prospect theory is a, a theory of individual decision-making that Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky came up with. Uh, they won the Nobel Prize in economics for it, among other things. And essentially, the key aspect of prospect theory says that if relative to the status quo, you see yourself as winning, you will act in a risk-averse manner. Whereas if you are relative to the status quo, see yourself as losing, you will act in risk-loving behavior. You are more willing to, to gamble for resurrection, as it were. And I think in some ways, China's attempt to contact alien civilizations qualifies as a gamble for resurrection. Um, obviously, the odds of actually contacting aliens are, are relatively low. And the implications of contacting those alien civilizations are also pretty damn risky if you think about it. And nonetheless, China decides to do it, um, thinking that this might be a way in which they can level the playing field on Earth. And so that was, a, I gave it that a huge thumbs up, totally believable, very consistent with prospect theory. That makes sense to me. And it makes me think of something I read about the book, mm -hmm. which posited that this is a allegory or parable, wherein Earth is the United States. Oh, and the Trisolarians are China. Oh, dear. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Um, and I can see how that sort of works. Yeah. Mainly, not mainly, but the thing that's the spark that I was like, oh, yeah, that I see that, is in the stop-start nature of Trisolarian culture right. and how extensive it is, right? Mm -hmm. Ancient. But these periods of dehydration, let's say, right? <laughs> where for political reasons or whatever, progress gets arrested, sometimes for environmental reasons. And that we, Earth, we, we United States, are a lot like Earth is sort of naive, hmm. <laughs> perhaps yeah. just unaware of the perhaps threat that is at our door, you know? Fair enough. So I don't know if, you, if, you, if, if that goes in with prospect theory, except that the... Would you say this is well? Who is behaving more risky here, the Trisolarians or the Earth or the Earth people? Well, again, China is the one that's behaving riskier in terms of even deciding to contact the civilization in the first place. Um, right. So that's the, the that's the sort of risky behavior. You can argue that Ye is actually engaging in risky behavior in asking for the Trisolarians to come conquer Earth because you don't know how that's necessarily going to play out. There's no guarantee that that that's going to work out terribly well. So the very, very sort of bleak 
if we took this allegory, is that the United States doesn't realize China's might. Right. And also the Trisolarans are actually somewhat engaging in risky behavior, but they have nothing to lose because in defense of the Trisolarans, their civilization keeps destroying itself and they are like down to their last planet in the Trisolaran system. So I kind of get why they're doing what they're doing. Anyway, that was someone else's analysis. I want to just put that straight on here and I'm going to talk a little bit more about the possibility and impossibility of using this book for political uh, criticism after we talk more about IR. All right, so two more IR concepts. Again, one which I liked, one which I did not. Uh, The technological arms race, I think, between Earth and Trisolaris was legitimately interesting in the idea of the Trisolarans actually having sort of a constant level of technology. Earth's technological advancement starts going exponentially. You see a classic security dilemma in which, despite the fact that the Trisolarans decide they want to conquer Earth, they realize that if they don't do something, they might actually get conquered themselves. Total thumbs up on this. The thing I did not like was the Trisolaran belief, and here this might be, again, the influenced by China uh, discourse, the Trisolaran belief that democratic societies are the most fragile to chaotic eras or to, to crumbling during chaotic eras. Uh, I'm going to give that a thumbs down because actually the sort of literature in terms of how well different kinds of regimes respond to natural disasters, at least here on Earth, suggests that in fact democracies are superior to autocracies in terms of their response. It's hardly the only factor, and I want to stress this is probabilistic, but nonetheless, democracies tend to have more of an incentive to provide actual public goods in terms of response to crises as opposed to autocratic ones. I would tend to agree. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like democracies, and I do think they're pretty resilient. And I just want to say that I think this is another sort of piece of evidence in the argument that Trisolarians represent China. Yeah. So... Moving on. Dan, did you think that this book had some important themes? No. (laughs) I'm sorry. I literally wrote in my notes, themes? Seriously, what freaking themes? Um, And this is where I will confess my frustrations with the book. There are are genuinely really interesting portions of this book. I understand why it's piqued the interest of a lot. But what I would say is there are not themes in this book. There are puzzles. Um, mm. and, and really, if, if there is a theme, maybe the theme is man sucks and societies inevitably split into factions. The one thing I did like, even if it wasn't told very well, I, I did love the idea that this ETO is founded as a way of sort of welcoming the Trisolarans to Earth and inevitably factions develop within the ETO, much as it does within the Cultural Revolution or Earth as a, as a whole. And so, yes, that sort of basic notion of it's extremely hard for mankind to unite. Fine. That's, I, I totally get that. And certainly as an international relations scholar, I buy that. Beyond that, I, I didn't see much. I'm sorry. But Anna, I can be persuaded otherwise. <sighs> Are there themes? Well, you know, Dan. Yes. This is not a well-written book. <laughs> it has flashes of good writing. And and I don't know how much to, to blame a translator here. Mm. But there are just, you know, yards and yards of se- of telling and not showing. And, and I, at one point while I was reading, decided I wanted to, during the podcast, read aloud from one of the sections that are about the radio telemetry. Uh, I will not do that. Thanks. I did do that to my dad. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> that is mean. But to be fair, it's only because he hasn't read the book. Everyone right. who's listening to this, I presume, has read the book, so I won't impose that upon them again um they've already made it through it once as far as themes go it's it's funny like i think there is a 
point of view, maybe more than mm. a theme, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a point of view that's very much informed by uh, someone who's been through Chinese history and experienced some serious oppression and serious, you know, political tyranny, I guess I'll say. One of the stories that's in the New Yorker profile about Zixin mm-hmm. is that uh, his grandparents in the, in the civil war that broke out after uh, World War II in China, they had two sons and they didn't know which side would win. Mm-hmm. So they sent a son to join both sides. Cool. They sent one son to either side, okay. which is almost like something you would read in this novel. Like yeah. that sounds like something that would, that would happen in this book. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is a thing that actually happened to him is that, I guess, in the 1990s, during these vast technological changes uh, in China, like he, the author himself is a managing engineer at a dam, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he was just asked to lay off half of his employees, like, you choose. And that also feels like something that would happen mm-hmm. kind of, I guess what I'm saying, you know, I'm not saying it feels like something would happen in this book. What I'm saying is that he does conjure, I guess, what must be kind of a correct picture or at least one really vivid picture of what it's like to live in a repressive regime. A chaotic right? era. Is um, a chaotic era. Yeah, a chaotic yeah. era. It will say that surprisingly, I'm not sure what this book has to say about capitalism. Um, Anna. <laughs> I know. My God. I know. I know. What? <laughs> I feel like it spends so much time examining the chaotic era mm-hmm. concept that there's not a lot of not a lot of time to talk about capitalism. I mean, there's some references to it, and it's definitely no, the, like a... And again, this was what was ahead. frustrating for me. There were sort of vague references that current China is obviously very different from the Cultural Revolution, but there's almost no conversation whatsoever about the fact that like the China at the time that he's writing is infinitely wealthier and, and more dynamic as a society than the Cultural Revolution era China. And then sort of want to wrap it around in an interesting way, which is that... Uh, in this New Yorker profile, which is where the Uyghur quotes come from, by the way, mm-hmm. he at one point is, is uh, talking about Stanislaw Lu and how wonderful it is that he was able to write that stuff under communism, right? How amazing. And the New Yorker reporter says, well, you know, the reason he could do that is that he just said he was making shit up and it had nothing to do with politics and that he actually supported, <laughs> you know, his comrades. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, plot twist. Mm. Because that could be, you know, what Seixin is doing, even with those comments about the Uyghurs. Maybe. Because another thing that that came up in one of the profiles is it described him as not a dissident. And I wonder, hmm, you know, is he playing the very, very long game here? (laughs) And writing stuff that is, what's the word I want to use? If he's Straussian. playing a very long game here. <laughs> well, he's he's writing stuff that does have criticisms yeah. of the government, you know, that is um, an intellectual critique, but he's hiding it under this persona which says, oh, I'm just making shit up. And also, by the way, I agree with the oppression of the Uyghurs. I mean, it's an extreme thing to do yeah. to like say something like that, for instance, um, and know that the Western world will think of you as a, a monster for saying it. But perhaps doing it with the knowledge that this means you're going to keep getting your books published. Mm-hmm. And again, I say, having read the novel, like that kind of choice makes sense to me. 
Interesting. All right, Anna, I believe it's time to move to the debris field, correct? <laughs> That's um, our ship hitting like little pieces of debris. Go ahead, Dan. Um, I think actually the the, the few things that uh, I wanted to talk about are we, we got to already, which is, again, there was, again, the social scientist in me was somewhat irked because like, oh, no, these physicists are really freaked out about the fact that like things change in the universe. And that, that sort of metaphor of like playing the pool, uh, making shots on the pool table. In some ways, that is a, a classic social science model as well. We actually even talk about billiard ball models in international relations. And again, there is the incongruity of scientists simultaneously rooting for the Trisolarans and then getting science denied to them. That's just weird as fuck. I don't, I, there's no other way I can put that. But Anna, mostly I have a question for you actually, which is the three-body problem is the first book in a three-book trilogy. I am curious, are you going to read the other two books? Life is short, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I keep referring back to this New Yorker profile. It's a good profile, and, and it, to me, made it a lot more interesting reading than the book itself. And yet it also gave me some perspective on the book that in retrospect sort of, you know, makes me think about it a little bit harder, although I, I can't say, I can't go back and, and, you know, retroactively enjoy the experience of reading it because I did not enjoy the experience of reading it. <laughs> but I am interested in, in the problems and the puzzles yeah. that he proposes. The other two books uh, do have a different translator, which might make a difference. Hmm. And also just maybe he doesn't explain so much about radio telemetry. I would believe that would make it a better better read for me. <laughs> I did find it interesting that there are only two adversaries in a book about a three-body problem, which, Ooh. as my dad pointed out, is actually a four-body problem. Yes, very good. And that has an IR dimension, doesn't mm -hmm. it, Dan? It does. <laughs> yeah. Because there is no such thing as just a bilateral war, right? No, you can have a... I mean, there. well, there's two sides. There's more, but you can't just... There's always other things involved. Like, you don't have the whole world participating in a war. Well... Literally, right? Uh, I mean, you know, the Cold War would be thought of as, as one in which you had, like, roughly a, a bipolar distribution of power. There was... There were neutral... But there are other parties. Yeah. There's, like, other, other things involved. Like, you can't have just, like, a purely... Like, everyone in the world is either one side or another side. Well, it is the definition of zero-sum conflict that makes it but it actually makes it more stable weirdly you could argue that the introduction of an other additional actors makes it more unstable it makes it more chaotic that's what i'm saying yes, that's yes. the whole three-body that's the three-body problem yes, exactly. yes. Fair enough. <laughs> and so it's interesting i mean i guess he sort of gets at this by having there be factions within you know the eto and yeah. within the tricellarian culture although there's not many factions in tricellarian culture no really. the one there's just like is, the one pacifist the one pacifist so. is killed but you would assume that there would be others i mean it's it sort of yeah. and, and if there isn't then that is bad writing and bad social science i'm sorry the only other thing i will say that's that i just wanted to be sure to get in is from this fantastic new yorker profile where sishin says of trump <laughs> out of all the american presidents he is the only one whose speeches i can understand directly without translation <laughs> There are no big words or complicated grammar. Everything he says is reduced to the simplest possible formulation. And I just found that uh, quite funny. And it also gave me that brief flashback to the Trump era that does seem, I have to say, Dan, you know, off topic, 
doesn't it seem like it happened like 10 years ago? Like, I, you know, this is where because of the overlaps with the pandemic that it doesn't quite feel like that to me. But like, yeah, uh, I, I will. Let me put it this way. What has changed is I don't have the same sense now of like desperately needing to stay abreast of moment by moment changes in the news. And that is that's probably why it makes feels far away. That why that does make it feel somewhat further away. And that's actually not unpleasant. No, and it's funny too. Like I, I'm not one of those people that's like, and now we don't have to pay attention to politics because Biden's great. No, um, no. I, I don't believe that at all. But I will say that I'm on the news distribution list for the Trump post presidency. It's like called just 45 or something uh, like mm-hmm. that. And I will say, and that's how he tweets these days. He just sends out these press releases. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it is very satisfying to read them. And be like, well, this is really stupid, and not many people are going to see it. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> and it just feels like the meme of like, hmm, Trump. I haven't heard that name in years. <laughs> I have to say, I think the thing I am enjoying the most, actually, is the fact that occasionally he does try to engage the public. You know, he'll give the speech mm-hmm. at CPAC, or he will issue, as you say, these releases, which some reporters will tweet out. And, you know, they do generate a ripple. There's no denying that. But the ripple is not that large and it fades away quickly. And that I like very much. Um, He has lost his agenda setting power. And that is not an insignificant thing. Like, I think Trumpism is continues to be a huge threat. Mm -hmm. I think polarization in America is still enormous and a problem. But it's just kind of nice that that guy (laughs) is not... To be fair, you know, you know it's important. once we approach the midterms and once potentially 2024, it's it, it, this isn't necessarily going to be a permanent thing. But I will say that one of the things that is becoming clear is the degree to which, you know, to the extent that he did have a genocide power, it was because he was occupying 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily because he's all that great at it. And my hunch is, I will add this, like, I know multiple people who are actually like four-star generals who then had to transition to civilian life. And one of the hard things to do when you do that is that when you are a four-star, you are much like a president in that you have a retinue of like hundreds of people who are making, taking care of your every whim and so on and so forth. And then even though these people very often land with really good and prestigious you know, civilian jobs, it's an awkward transition. They don't know what to do. And they find that they have lost certain basic skills. And there's a part of me that thinks that's kind of what's happening to the president, former President Trump. I don't think he had any skills to lose, Dan. His behavior as a post-president is not that different than his behavior as a president in terms of playing a lot of golf, yeah, um, complaining. <laughs> but the nice thing is, is that it doesn't matter as much. And so... Yeah, that's, that's, that's the, the difference that is it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I think he probably employs enough people that maybe it feels like he has a, the same kind of staff. But the difference is, yeah, like he can't turn on the TV and just see himself. Right, you know? exactly. And you know what, Dan? People are getting a little glimpse of our day jobs yeah, that's uh, with this good. discussion. That's true. And so we should probably wrap that up. Mm-hmm. Um, a somewhat heartfelt apology to people that d- don't like the occasional interludes of, of real politics into this podcast. <laughs> we do try to if keep them you, to a minimum, I will say. Yes. If you do enjoy them, you should enjoy us at our day jobs. Um, Dan, uh, what what is your day job? <laughs> I, I'm a man of many hats, Anna. No, I teach, uh, <laughs> I, I teach international <laughs> politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. I also write the spoiler alerts column for the Washington Post. Anna, what is your day job? 
Well, Dan, I have another podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is an interview-based podcast with a little network called Crooked Media. Whoa. I know. It's called With Friends Like These, and it's sort of about... I'm never very good at describing it. I I did have this insight the other day. I should just tell people it's an interview show. So maybe I'll just say that. It's an interview show. <laughs> Having once been on that show, I would say it's an interview show, but it's an interview show in which you draw out very interesting observations from people that, that would not necessarily ordinarily have taken place. And so... You know, in that sense, it's great. Sometimes we talk about it being uncomfortable conversations, but I don't know if they're uncomfortable so much as like, yeah, challenging maybe, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily in an adversarial way. Like I do just try to get people to think differently or bring a different perspective as long as we're promoting ourselves here. The greatest compliment I get from on that show is, of course, people saying, good question. And also... No one's asked me that before. Those are my two favorite compliments. Um, <laughs> although sometimes good question is just a stalling technique. I also write a bunch. Um, both of us are on Twitter. I'm at Anna Marie Cox. And I am at Dan Dresner. Very creative handles. <laughs> Our upcoming episodes include Arrival next week mm-hmm. and then H.P. Lovecraft That's after correct. that. Lovecraft uh, will be cannon fodder episode and then the old school pilot to Battlestar Galactica. And until then, Dan. Keep this channel open for more.